After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamathada, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamathatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, Wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. 
She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come in to the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Well, good morning. That was a lot of scripture to read this morning. And so as you can clearly see, we have a lot of ground to cover today. I tell you, coming before you on a Sunday morning, the Sunday of time change, I have often wondered why many churches meet in the morning and not in the evening on days like today, just to give people more time to prepare for the change. But again, by God's grace, here we are, and I'm thankful that you are here and you are with us. Now, obviously, based on our reading this morning, we are clearly still walking through our study of the book of Esther and our series called An Unexpected Savior. Now, so much, as you have just heard, is already happening in our two chapters today. So as we continue to read through our text and walk through our text together, I want us to pay attention that clearly darkness is still moving, wretchedness still exists within the king, and it is now spreading into the council and into the leaders that are around him. Yet in the midst of it all, as we just sang about, in the midst of the mess, in the midst of the madness, we are beginning to see God's glorious light break through. You see, what we're about to see is 
God begin an amazing work, a work that started back in Esther 1 that none of the characters even knew about, but now all of a sudden is going to begin to be seen more and more as we get into Esther chapter 4. You see, all the chaos that happens, all the tension that is now building will ultimately culminate in one phrase today found in Esther chapter 4 verse 14 where Mordecai realizes that Esther has now been made queen by God for such a time as this. So as we work through our text, I want us to pay attention to our own lives and and how maybe we should perhaps respond to situations that may be good or even situations that may not be as good. And yet at the same time, let's ask ourselves this moment, in moments of trial, when worst case scenarios seem to be playing out all around us, how are we responding to those particular moments? Are we looking to God, trusting him that his light will always break forth in the midst of darkness or in the moments of hardship do we find ourselves simply relying on ourselves and on our own ability. So in order to answer these questions, let's just go back and jump into our story this morning. You see in Esther chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, our text now opens with what should have been Mordecai being rewarded for revealing a plot to kill the king. We just read about this in Esther chapter 2, but instead of Mordecai being promoted, we read, and after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite and advanced him and set his throne above all all the officials who were with him. Now, upon initial reading, this may not seem like a very big deal for us, but for Mordecai, and especially for Jews who are now hearing this story as well, this would have been like pouring salt over an open wound. You see, what has just happened to Mordecai and to the Jews is literally just now adding insult to injury for all of the Jews. You see, right when it looks as though something is going to go well for God's people, as we read at the end of chapter 2, all of a sudden we open with chapter 3 and see that a descendant of God's enemies is now placed in charge. So whether he was a true Agagite or not, that can be debated. We see a lot of this story as we read in 1 Samuel. But either way, we know that Haman is definitely an enemy of the Jews. You see, just to give you some perspective of what Mordecai may be experiencing, to give you some perspective over what Jews may be experiencing or thinking as they're reading about this moment in Esther chapter 3, it's almost like your football team blowing a 28-3 fourth quarter Super Bowl lead. Or better yet, maybe you're a baseball fan and your, your favorite baseball team is up three games to one in the National League Championship Series only to lose the next three games in a row. You see, it's at this moment the Jews are literally saying to themselves, come on, you have got to be kidding me. Not this, not now, not again. And so as we continue to read in our text, and the text really doesn't tell us, but Mordecai rebels against the king by not bowing to Haman. 
Now, at first, Haman has no idea of what is going on. In fact, Mordecai's defiance was neither loud nor was it obvious to the casual observer. However, with wretchedness being what it is, with sin doing what it does, and with people seeking their own selfish gain in order to get ahead, we see that two servants at the king's gate notice Mordecai's defiance and they begin to question him on it. And all they can determine is that Mordecai's defiance is done because he is a Jew. And so Haman finally gets word of this. And by verse 5 we read, And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. Now again, here is a clear example of what happens when sin creeps into our life and then begins to escape us and affects those around us and when we allow sin to fester and grow within ourselves. You see, Haman, instead of trying to resolve this matter with Mordecai directly, decides that only the total annihilation of Jews would satisfy the disrespect of this one man. Again, We don't know exactly what is leading Mordecai to rebel in this way. But pay attention to how God will ultimately use the complaint. He will use the rebellion in order to accomplish his plan. Now there's going to be more on this as we get later into our text and in later chapters. But before we jump ahead, let's look briefly at each man in this moment. You see, we have Haman. Haman, who wanted to be recognized as a great ruler. Doesn't that sound familiar to chapter 1 with King Ahasuerus? He, we see Haman reacting horribly when one person failed to now recognize what was his perceived greatness. Again, something we have already seen from yet another leader. And so for us today, in looking at the character of Haman, we have a good lesson for us today. You see, how do we react today when people don't recognize our accomplishments? Better yet, how do we respond when our service to the church is not recognized? Do we just move on realizing that the reason why we serve is for the glory of God? Or do we get angry? You see, here's the reality. We may not be Haman, but we can definitely be like him. We may not be like him in the sense of we get so angry that we're ready to kill off an entire people group. However, it is possible for us today to think too highly of ourselves that we allow hate and bitterness to take root within us and then to build so that we ultimately end up murdering people with our own thoughts of them. You see, we have to ask ourselves this question now when we serve. Do we serve and seek to honor God? Or are we serving to seek honor for ourselves? Now my prayer is that we would not be like those who are mentioned in John chapter 12 verse 43 where it says, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You see, we need to be careful in this moment. If we come to church to seek the praise of ourselves, if we come to church in hopes of one day seeing a building named after ourselves, or if we come to church in hopes of seeing a a plaque on the wall that honors us, then we are missing the point of why we gather. 
You see, we have now made this place about us. And it is no longer about what it is that God is doing. I want to tell you now, and I say this with all grace and encouragement to you. None of us are called here to save God's church. None of us are called here because we were simply needed. No, God is the one who has brought us all together. And so our call now is to faithfully serve God and to make sure that God is the one who is given all praise and glory because of the gifts and the skills that he has given to us and not the other way around. You see, we are not the Calvary. We don't ride in and save God. That's not how this works. But that's exactly what Haman thought. But before we move back into the text again, let's look quickly at Mordecai as well because there's some lessons that we can learn from him. Now we, again, don't have any clarity as to why Mordecai rebelled from the text, but there is a lesson that we can learn from him today. You see, unlike Mordecai, we should not be the type of people who withhold honor where honor is due. You see, when we begin to withhold honor from people or respecting other people, we have to ask ourselves this question. Is it out of convenience simply because I don't like the person or is it out of conviction because I'm standing upon biblical authority? You see, we need to be careful here because Many people who claim to be followers of Christ have picked up the phrase that we have heard over the past four years and they started shouting, not my president. We need to be careful when we use these words. You see, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 tells us, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. You see, as Christians today, we have a responsibility to honor. And believe it or not, even though society wants to tell us otherwise, even though we now live in a culture that simply wants to cancel people out because of simple disagreements, it is possible to disagree with someone and still respect them and still show them the honor they are due. There is no need to cancel anyone. And so as we come back to our text, again, we don't know why Mordecai made the decision he did. But we do know that his refusal to honor Haman would cause great consequences for all Jews within the Persian Empire. And so we would do well at this point to remember that even God is sovereign over those who were honored and he is sovereign over those who are dishonored. And so our responsibility as believers is to make sure that God is the one who is honored, that God is the one who is glorified and we are called upon to give God all glory and praise. Now we move from there into verses 7 through 15, and here we have a sobering reminder that we are still in the clutches of man's wretchedness. Now again, Haman clearly had zero thought that his measure to kill all Jews was too drastic. We see in this moment that they cast purr or they cast lots in order to determine the time. And so literally what you have here is Haman was rolling the dice on when this mass execution should actually occur. 
And so from our text, we deter, it's determined that the 12th month would be the best time to slaughter the Jews. Now notice what's taking place here. The date determined by Haman was not by random chance. Rather, it is clear that this was the direction of God. Now don't mishear what's happening in this moment. God is not saying to us as believers today to simply roll the dice and sit back and say, okay, God, there you go. You make it happen. However, it does mean for the Jews that they now had a long time between the first month and the 12th month, which means for the Jews who thought mass execution was coming their way, all of a sudden they quickly realized that anything can happen when you are given 12 months. And the reality is this, 12 months is more than enough time when it comes to God and the work that he will do. Next, we see Haman go to the king in order to convince the king uh, that it was right to annihilate these people that were within his realm. Now, you would think for a moment this would be a daunting task for one man to stand before a king and call for the mass execution of an entire people group. However, for Haman, he came to the king, created a weak scenario full of general statements that would easily sway the king. Now, why is this important to us? Well, think about it for a moment. How many times do we ourselves tell our own version of a story in order to influence the decisions of others? Whether we mean to or not, we always shape our stories in a way to lead others to agree with our side. And so sadly, in our text today, we see a wretched king, not to be confused with a wise king, would ultimately go along with the plan that Haman has concocted. And never once, notice this, never once does King Ahasuerus ask for any details about what is going to happen. You see, this, this king was so immersed still in his wretchedness and his sin that he was not about to let facts get in the way of gossip, nor was he going to allow facts to get in the way of his own greed. Now, in order to compound the matter even more, notice what Haman does here. Haman offers to pay a bogus amount of silver to the treasury. You see, this is a plan that Haman would never be able to deliver on. And yet here again, we see a moment where not only is Haman lying, but now all of a sudden these numbers that we think are arbitrary actually begin to matter. Notice that he offers to give 10,000 talents of silver. Now again, many of us would glaze over this and think, no big deal, random number, right? Well, that number would actually equal about half to two-thirds of the, empire, the empire's entire tax revenue. And so where was Haman going to all of a sudden come up with this particular number? Well, again, when you're immersed in your sin and you're blind to the facts because of your wretchedness, it simply does not matter. And so, of course, it didn't matter to the king. You see, King Ahasuerus then gives Haman his ring to validate, validate the decrees. And yet again, here we see a king who simply has a lack of regard for human life. 
And so we read that Jews of every age or every age and of every gender were about to be slaughtered by their neighbors and it all originated with the hate and the fury and the sin of one man. Now at this moment, we may be looking at the text and saying to ourselves, well, praise be to God because this moment would never happen today. May I remind you of how Jews were treated not that long ago during the Holocaust. It has happened. It can happen. And if we're not careful, it will happen again. May I remind you as well, for those who would say, well, praise be to God, this total annihilation of a people would never happen today, not in our country. May I gently remind you that you currently live in a country where genocide is now happening. You see, while we are wrapped up in our politics, while we are still arguing over vaccinations and and COVID, what we're failing to see is more than 600 to 800,000 babies will lose their lives. It is happening, and it's happening here. Now, the problem is we want to sit there and scream, stop the madness, but well, let me ask you a question. It's one thing to scream about the problem, but the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is how are we helping to find solutions? When it comes to topics like abortion, how are we telling young pregnant women that it's okay and there are better options and there are people who will care for you and love you and care for your child and love your child, that there's a people group known as the church that will lift you up and support you during this hurting time? Where are the people who will look to this young man who realizes that all of a sudden his life has now changed and say there is a better way for you and there is a place where people will show you grace and teach you how to be the father and the husband and the man that God has called you to be. Maybe I'm asking too much. Maybe maybe a better question is this. In the midst of the screaming and the noise that we're making, How many of us are actually supporting things like adoptions or foster care? You see, I'm sorry to say this today. And if I'm in the minority, then forgive me. But if you're like me, you're probably quickly realizing that complaining on Facebook is simply not getting anything done. All it's doing is creating further divide. And so it's time for us as a church to actually do something. You may be thinking by this moment as well and upon reading this text, well, praise God that here I am. I'm not like Haman. I don't want to eliminate a people group. I'm gonna go and tell you that no one has ever, well, yet, walked into my office and said, pastor, I am so upset with this particular generation of people that I'm ready just to annihilate all of them. Nobody has walked into my office yet and said, pastor, I am just so upset with how awful my team is doing that I am ready to annihilate the entire University of Georgia. Praise the Lord, no one has said that to me. But here's the problem again. We may not be thinking about eliminating entire people groups, but many of us are harboring thoughts of superiority over others. You see, when we begin to speak of elitism, when we think that our people group and our age and our time are better than others, then we are beginning to annihilate a group, saying to this group that because you are young, you cannot begin to understand what it is that I am going through. 
At the same time, we cannot be a people who say, because you are old, you are now no longer needed. That is elitism. And that leads to wretchedness and sin. At the same time, we are now seeing nationalism elevate candidates to savior status, thinking that this particular candidate is here to save us when the reality is that whether it's in the midst of our elitism, whether it's in the midst of our nationalism, it is still God who is in control over all things. And so as believers today, we need to remember that all people were created in the image of God and our call, as we read about last week, is to work for the good of all people. Now coming back to our text, after getting the decree from the king, Haman wastes no time in revealing what it is that he wants, when it is that he wants it, and to whom it should be done. He uses these words, he says, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children. Now Haman gives us no instruction as to how it's going to be done. He doesn't give reason as to why it should be done. But we do know that Haman, in the midst of his own sin, is now on a mission to see all Jews destroyed. Now again, pay attention to when this decree was given. This decree was given on the 13th day of the first month, which would have been the day before Passover for the Jews. So the Jews, upon receiving this decree, would have been thinking one of two things as they made preparation for the Passover. They would have been thinking that either their sin has now led God to destroy them or they were now going to be crying out to God to rescue them, which is exactly why they were celebrating the Passover in the first place. Now again, spoiler alert, we know the end of the story. God delivers his people. Haman thought he needed King Ahasuerus' permission and he got it, but it was God who would not grant the destruction of his people. You see, the silver that Haman promised, similar to the silver that Judas was given for betraying Jesus, could not stop the plans of God. And so here's the truth for us today. The plans of this world will never be able to stop God from providing and for sustaining his people. And it is God and God alone who will always be victorious. And that is why we gather to praise him. Now, coming back to our text again, we see that the decree is now sent. Haman and the king now celebrate. They drink together. The city and the citadel is now thrown into confusion over what was supposed to happen. And obviously, Jews are now concerned. Yet through it all, we are going to see that God is still in control. In a moment similar to what we read about in Job, Mordecai himself is about to realize that God is God and we are are not. And maybe, just maybe, God was preparing Esther for such a time as this. So then we jump to chapter four. 
Chapter four and verses one through eight, we now are about to see Mordecai and Esther's conversation and reaction to what has now been decreed. You see, Mordecai finds out about Haman's plan and realizing his defiance has now brought on consequences for all of his people. He now puts on sackcloth and ash, which is used to express grief and guilt and despair over a situation. And so Mordecai, by doing this, knew that he would never get an offer audience with the king and he knew there was no need to try and meet with Haman in order to work this out because by this point it was already too late so he did the only thing that he knew to do you see the time for hiding as a Jew and Mordecai and hiding his history and hiding his family and hiding his background it had now gone and so we read that Mordecai's reaction created a reaction in all Jews over all the provinces as they realized what was coming. And so what we have here in the beginning of Esther chapter 4 is a national lament which probably would draw the attention of someone somewhere at some point in time. You see, when a people group weep together, someone somewhere takes notice. When Christians weep together, I assure you, God sees it and he notices because God never takes his eyes off of us. Now, Esther, being that someone somewhere heard about Mordecai, and so she decided to send clothes to him to cover his grief. Again, apparently, Esther was still clueless about this decree. But then learn this lesson from Esther today. Learn that it is always good to ask questions first before trying to determine a solution. And so Mordecai, through Esther's servants, now tells her about the the decree and pleads with her to talk to the king. Now clearly, Esther and Mordecai are worried about this particular edict. But remember that God is not sitting on the edge of his seat at this moment, worried and wondering what would happen next. In fact, it's at this point in the story, it would be good for us to remember the words of Isaiah 46, verse 10, which tells us that God is declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You see, even though our heroes don't see it yet, God still has a plan. So we move from there in verses 9 through 11, and Mordecai now encourages Esther to leverage her influence over the king. You see, again, Mordecai points to the fact that the time for keeping secrets is now over. And so Esther, upon hearing this, notice what she does. Esther hesitates. You see, Esther knew royal protocol. In fact, by this point, I'm quite confident she was well-versed in royal protocol. And she understood that the penalty for breaking protocol, the penalty for taking yourself to the king without being called was death. And so Esther, in this moment, probably wasn't sure whether or not she wanted to take the risk, especially after witnessing how Vashti was disposed of and all she simply did was rebel against the king. And so as crazy as this may sound, 
And I don't, I don't want any of us to miss this moment. This is not a moment for us to look at Esther and, and simply be discouraged by her decision. Rather, for us as believers, I hope we look at Esther's hesitation as a moment of encouragement. You see, Esther's obedience was not full of courage. Esther's obedience uh, was not immediate. She even reasoned with herself and tried to reason with Mordecai that she was not the right person for this particular task. You see, when you think about Esther and her decisions in this moment, oftentimes when God calls us to a task, what do we normally do? We tend to focus on our own deficiencies. We tend to focus on our own, or our own disqualifications as opposed to being focused on God and his grace and his goodness and how he fulfills his purpose through our call. And so clearly, clearly we need to listen to God. Clearly we need to listen to God through his word before we begin to criticize ourselves and our own abilities to do what it is that God is calling us to do. And so again, to our text in verses 12 through 14, I can't even, in reading these verses, I can't even begin to tell you enough how often I am in need of a push or how often I am in need of encouragement from others. And I have so many people that I am thankful for who are speaking encouragement into my life. So when we look at these particular verses, this is exactly what Mordecai is doing for Esther. You see, upon hearing the thoughts of Esther, he reminds her that she would not be excused from this decree. And then he encourages her to faithful obedience to God and for her people. Now, again, I think it's still too soon to start referring to Mordecai as a great man of faith, but clearly we are beginning to see him walk out his faith and work out his faith as he sees God's plan unfold. That then leads us to verse 14, which again is one of the most recognized passages in all of scripture. And it occurs when Mordecai says, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You see, Mordecai in a moment of faith, Mordecai, in looking to God for deliverance, is beginning to piece together how an orphan girl was now taken to become queen. And maybe, just maybe, this wasn't a tragedy after all, but rather God fulfilling his purpose for his people, and he was doing it through Esther. You see, Esther had now been entrusted with an opportunity. She had been entrusted with a responsibility to deliver her people from the wicked plans of Haman. And it was all done not by Esther's doing, but rather by the will and purpose of God. Man, I got to tell you, I love this. Because when you think about the story of Esther at this point, and you're hearing this for the first time, and you're seeing this darkness and wretchedness, but then all of a sudden this, this light is beginning to piece through and peer through, and then all of a sudden you realize that maybe God was in this all along. When you look at your own lives, when we look at our lives collectively together, upon reading Esther and thinking about our own lives, we quickly realize that it is the Lord who determines where we live. 
It is the Lord who determines when we live there. You see, the places that we are in, the jobs that we have, even the churches that we currently serve in, none of this was done by random chance. We didn't just roll the dice and show up. Rather, these things have been entrusted to us by the will of God for the purpose of gospel advancement so that God and God alone would be glorified. You see, I love what Paul says at this point in Acts chapter 17, verse 26. He says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You see, according to Paul's own words, this is our time. This is now our place, the place that God has willed for us to now go and to make disciples. And as we know all too well, with every passing day, as we continue to age, our time decreases as our lives draw to a close. So from Paul's words to now back to Esther's story, there needs to be a sense of gospel urgency when it comes to our lives. You see, like Esther, we need to realize that this spiritual warfare is not just a random battle, but rather we are now on a rescue mission given to us by God for the glory of God and for the good of others. You see, everything rests in the sovereign hands of God. Coming back to our text in verse 15 through 17, we now see that Esther changes her heart. It changes from reluctance to resolve. She now knows what it is that she must do. She now realizes that she is the one who is going to have to break protocol. Now again, I am not the writer of Esther. However, this would have been a good moment to pause for a word of prayer. If I was writing this story, I would almost be tempted to make up a prayer at this point. And Mordecai prayed, Sovereign Lord. And Esther prayed, sovereign God, give me strength. I mean, it's just a, you know what I'm saying? When you read the text at this point, you've arrived at a perfect point of prayer, right? The resolve is there. The mission is before them. Maybe we should pray about it. But notice again, our text does not mention any prayer whatsoever. However, notice what it is that we do see. Notice that we see fasting. You see, this is important because in fasting, When we fast, we are admitting our dependence on God to sustain us. So Esther now, along with Mordecai, now fast in order to express confidence and trust in what it is that God will do. And so let's just take a pause for a moment here and ask ourselves this question. When was the last time we fasted because we were seeking the Lord's direction? When was the last time we fasted because we wanted to be reminded of our dependence upon God? 
You see, neither Esther nor Mordecai knew how these next moments would turn out, but they knew that Esther should intercede for her people even though it could cost her her life. And so as we see from Esther in our text coming through chapter four, what is needed from us is not our full knowledge of the outcome, but rather what is needed is our faithful obedience to the one true living God. You see, at this point in Esther 4, we now know our characters. Our story is now set. We have plot, we have conflict, there is now tension, and yet there is a plan. And again, I want to remind you that we already know how this story ends. You see, when we look at Esther, and from Esther we look forward to Christ, we know that God used one perfect person to accomplish his overall purpose of uniting his creation back to him, and that person came in the form of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. However, as we can see in Esther, by the time we get through chapter four, Esther now teaches us that God also uses imperfect people. Imperfect people without full knowledge who walk in ordinary obedience in order to accomplish his amazing plan. So let's again pay attention to our characters. What did they get right? Where did they miss? But notice this, either way, whether in faithful obedience or whether in hesitation, God still used them. So like Esther, our story is now set. We now have a message to share. We now have good news to proclaim. Because again, we know how this story ends. And in a few weeks as we gather for Easter, we're going to celebrate it. It ends with the victory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's go proclaim that good news because we have been called to this place. We have been called to this community. We have been called for such a time as this. Let's pray together.